are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, we are exploring how that relationship gets worked out in real life with one of the current Sinai and Synapses fellows. Sinai and Synapses is a two-year fellowship committed to elevating the discourse surrounding religion and science and where the five of us first met. So, without further ado... Our guest today is Professor of Biblical Worldview and Exegesis at Northeastern Seminary in Rochester, New York. He is the past president of the Canadian Society of Biblical Studies and the Canadian American Theological Association. His most recent book is Abraham's Silence, The Binding of Isaac, The Suffering of Job, and How to Talk Back to God. Real excited to talk about that. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Richard Middleton. Yeah, it's a pleasure Welcome. to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many themes uh, throughout your work, throughout all of the books and articles that you've written. There's so so eclectic. Um, I I really want to be able to get into some of that. Before I do, you have a bit of an interesting path through life that have brought yeah. to you to where you are now, right? That if I, I'm reading this right, that you were born in Jamaica, studied in Canada, and work in the U.S. Yeah. Um, so you kind of have several feet in several camps. Do you feel like that's given you a unique perspective on the world and in your field? You know, I guess it has. I haven't reflected on it consciously until the last decade or so. But I, I was asked to think about how my different um, ecclesial, but also cultural and geographical locations affected my interest and my angle of vision. So I've been thinking about that, and it certainly does affect it. Mm. And you mentioned that I came off being the president of this Canadian Biblical Society recently. My outgoing presidential address addressed that topic specifically, how being raised in Jamaica and studying theology there originally affects how I am a biblical scholar, how I do it differently than North Americans. How How is theology done in Jamaica differently? So in academia... Biblical studies can be very siloed. It can be uh, the study of the historical documents of the Bible in their ancient contexts. Whereas in the Caribbean, nobody studies the Bible, even academically, without implications for life and ethics, how it means to live as a Christian in a society which is a developing country on the edge of the American empire, <laughs> um, you know, um, and for pastoral ministry especially, and how does one connect the Bible to life and to culture. Um, and there are a lot of people in biblical studies in America and Canada doing that, but it's by no means the majority. It's still often, it, it's thought that if you bring the existential questions to the text, you're somehow contaminating objective biblical studies. Hmm. And so I kind of challenge that, try to break that di distinction down. Hmm. How has that gone for you, especially where you are now? Like, do you get pushback or anything, well, or like, how does that work? I, I don't get pushback in my seminary. This is what, this is what seminaries are for, is to make those connections, right? Mm. Um, so I've always chosen um, both churches and work environments that always were interested in those connections. But, you know, you, you go to conferences, you give papers, and you realize there are certain people you can discuss these things with who are sympathetic. You have other ones who are not at all sympathetic, and you have other ones who are not there, but they're willing to listen to you because they're open-minded about the fact that one comes from one's own ideological perspectives, no matter what you do, and it's going to affect how you see reality. 
So I have people that I've talked to who have very different points of view from me. That's why I love Sinai and Synapses. There's no problem with that, right? <laughs> um, but as long as you're open to talking and hearing where you respect the person who is doing the study, because academia is not something that just happens in a brain. It happens a full-bodied person does this kind of work for all kinds of personal reasons. And so I, I bring that explicitly and consciously to my work in such a way that it does not obscure the academic side of it. I want to say, I'm not just going to read my subjectivity into the Bible so it <laughs> says whatever I like. I want the Bible to be able to challenge me too. So I need to understand what it's actually saying in its original context, but I got to engage in a dialogue with it. And that's the talking back aspect of that book you mentioned. Yes, that is that is so pastoral in the way that, that you describe your biblical studies. I appreciate that. Um, I, I've always said that uh, it's especially evident in theodicy, right? The the study, mm -hmm. the basically asking the question of why bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people and how can God be good in the midst of it all? So many of those answers uh, make a lot of sense until you're suffering and then they fall apart. There's mm -hmm. no lived out reality to it. But uh, it sounds like you, you have a, a healthy understanding that one's interpretation of scripture, one's belief um, needs to be one that is interactive um, as a way, and you don't seem afraid to talk back to God. No, no, not, not at all. And in fact, I can remember one particular presentation I did reading the 23rd Psalm, a very favorite you know, devotional Psalm in the church, reading it in a postmodern context, critically mm -hmm. in light of the problem of evil <laughs> and challenging the Psalm, but hearing the Psalm speak back in an academic conference. And it was pretty clear that some of these people were thinking, where is this guy coming from, man, bringing all this personal stuff into it? Two women came to me afterwards, tears running down their eyes. Both biblical scholars said, thank you, thank God, somebody is addressing the real issues of the, of the text. And it tends to be women who are more open to this than men, but not exclusively. But I, that was just, it astounded me because I, was, I got a clear sense from the presentation that most of the audience was not with me mm -hmm. <laughs> at all. You know, <laughs> He's contaminating the Bible <laughs> by reading it with a popular song and reflecting on current issues and so on, yeah. So I reading it with a popular song. Yeah, yeah. There was a, a popular song by a Canadian Christian writer, Bruce Coburn, okay. called Strange Waters. That is a take on Psalm 23, but it turns it into a lament. Mm. Where is my pasture land in these dark valleys? You know, it, it asks questions of God about suffering. Yeah. Okay. And I played a song, it had a really amazing lead guitar solo, and I read Psalm 23 in the King James Version over the lead guitar solo. Hmm to start my paper. <laughs> yeah, I blew some people's minds. <laughs> I need to See, come that, to one of your presentations. Conference is a lot more exciting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was doing this in class for a while, but I made it into an academic paper, you know, for yeah. that yeah. context. <laughs> so I, uh, it was right, right before Sinai and Snapsy started. Um, I, it was, so our class, we started fall of 17. Um, and so, you know, it was in Summer of 17, actually spring of 17, I had decided, you know, I reached out to my priest at the time, uh, the rector of my church, saying that I wanted to start a Bible study because I'd never read it. But I really wanted it to be a very um, intense, reflective experience. Uh, in essence, what I was, what I told him was, is I was going to blog my way through the Bible, right? And so I, I started it, started it with just journaling about my thoughts, and he was the way he was explaining it to me for my process was that. You know, he would mentor me, but he was never going to edit anything I wrote. 
So, you know, for the first month, everything was just on a Google Doc. And then he said, I'm, I'm happy to look at it. I'm not going to tell you anything. You know, if you're going to do this, you need to put it on, put it on the blog yourself and, and do that. And, you know, I, I'm happy to walk through things with you, but I'm not going to tell you anything's right or wrong. Because um, he wanted me to go full through it. I found throughout that process, and I never finished, um, and I'm intending to finish, but I found throughout that process, the reading, uh, two things, and you kind of address them both uh, in your latest book, but I never liked the Psalms. I really struggled with them, and I, I see the beauty in them more now because my lens has changed. But, you know, I was told by somebody that, well, that the question was, do you like poetry? And I said, well, not really. And they're like, well, then that's the reason why you may not like the Psalms, because I prefer the narrative. But I, I remember one of the first meetings we had, I was with Isaac from our group, Zach, and I made a comment that one of the reasons why I didn't like the Psalms is because the things that stood out to me the most were ones that were just, it seemed like they were just there to lift up God, right? I didn't like that idea of it. It was just kind of like buttering up God. And I just, it just didn't sit well for me. Um, God's getting too big for his britches. Well, yeah, it was just kind of like, goodness gracious, do we, I mean, come on, how many more times does someone have to be like, you're the greatest ever? It's like, okay, we know. Right. And so I just, I struggled with that. I was terrible. Exactly. Isaac, I remember saying me like, Oh, really? You know, and just was kind of take surprised by it. But, uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Like, that and then I also want to ask you a question about the book of Job, but I I'll wait on that one. Yeah. yeah. Like, what do you tell people when they so I, if they say something like that to you about the Psalms, especially? I say there. So let me give you two two responses about the Psalms. Mm-hmm. The first is that the most common type of Psalm is a complaint Psalm. Okay. Which complains to God mm-hmm. that you ain't doing what you're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Now they will often start by saying, you know, you're amazing, God. You're great. You're in control. You're good. But then how the heck is this going on under your watch? Mm. So they will they will make the statement that's supposed to be theologically true and then say, but my experience does not match it. Okay. There's this yawning gap between what's supposed to be true and what our experience is. That is the most common psalm. About a third of all the psalms do that in one way or another. Some very extreme, some not so extreme. The psalms that actually do praise God straight, some of them do. Some thank God for an experience where they have been, you know, the metaphors tend to be, I've been in the pit and you pulled me out and I stand on the on the solid ground again, like Psalm 40. You know, you two has a song based on Psalm 40 about God pulling him out of the pit. They end that song, by the way, with a lament, you know, how long, O Lord, which they get from a different psalm and they, they tag it on the end because that, that's, the, that's typical of the psalm. So you praise God, you thank God, and then you question God. Okay. Now, a few of the Psalms, and it's a quite a small number, maybe a quarter or less, are direct praise. So the question is, what's the function of praise? Yeah, it sounds like buttering God up. <laughs> but praise is really about my being grateful to God for the world I'm in, for what God has done. That I, I'm not the source of my own being. I depend on others, and I'm acknowledging that. So for me, praise is a matter of forming me as a person to be grateful and to understand that I'm not autonomous in any absolute sense, but that I'm a, I'm a person in need like anyone else, and I affirm that the source of life is God, and the source of redemption is God. And praise is not really for God's benefit. Okay. So I have a unit that I teach sometimes. Um, there's a, a friend of mine who teaches a course on liturgy, and he asked me to come in and give this little unit on biblical 
understands our liturgy. I talk about lament and so on and complain, but then I talk about the praise. And here's what I say. I go to Psalm 50. Psalm 50 is a psalm in which God is challenging the people and calling them to account because they've misunderstood something. He's, this is a famous psalm that says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. So why are you giving sacrifices to me as if I need it? I don't need that okay. at all. And there is a, a song in some churches. It tends to be not in liturgical churches, which I am a part of now, liturgical churches. But I, I've heard this before. And it, it says, worship, it's all about you, Lord. And I say, no, worship is not about God at all. It's actually about us. God doesn't need our worship. That psalm is very clear. Don't think you're giving worship to God because God needs it. You're giving worship to God because you need it. And in fact, what God says at the end of that challenge in Psalm 50 is, give me, sacrifice to me a sacrifice of thanksgiving instead. Mm. Now, a thanksgiving sacrifice means that it's a metaphor that to be thankful means you have to reflect on your life, how you have been in need and have had your needs met, and you're grateful for that. So a sacrifice of thanksgiving is saying, I understand I'm not the source of everything. You are, and I'm grateful for that, Lord. Okay. So uh, there is actually an implicit narrative in a thanksgiving psalm that you've come through difficult times. And it doesn't mean not going more difficult times ahead, but you're grateful for having come through. And so I, I tell people, no, worship is not really about God. And it gets their, you know, their ire up because they say, of course it is. Uh, you know, well, in a certain sense, it's for your formation as a person more than it is about for God. That's how I respond. Yeah, well, that helps. And I think, you know, I'm remembering back, and it was, you know, back in like fall of 17, maybe early 18, uh, when we were there. And, and, you know, part of it was just I was very, uh, you know, understanding that I was part of a group and that I still, you know, still think that I don't have much of a theological background, but very excited to be with that group of people. But I like what you just said, especially, and I think maybe what stuck out for me when I was reading those Psalms was the initial part of, you know, praising and then being like, well, why aren't you doing this? Right. And I'm betting that's where mm. kind of Isaac was going to of mm. just, mm. you're focusing on maybe the, the beginning, but not necessarily the full message of each Psalm. Um, mm -hmm. Because I'm someone, you know, as we talked before we started recording, that I really try to embrace my questioning and my doubts. Um, because I feel like that makes it a, a richer journey for me, my own spiritual journey. Yeah. And so I would love to talk to you a little bit about Job, the book of Job, too. Because I remember the first time I read it, our, my the priest that I started my work with, he ended up getting elected bishop of Delaware and left, right? Like right when I started. <laughs> um, and so, and that was tough because we were very dear friends and, and we still are. But uh, one of the interims that we hired for most of 2018 um, I was at that time starting to get into Job and he was really excited about me reading Job because we got along very well. And I remember, uh, as I was reading it each week, I'd come to church and mention, okay, this is where I'm at. And so I'm thinking, and then I finished it. And, uh, that next day, next time at church, I said, well, I finished Job. And he said, okay, what'd you think? And I was like, I hated it. And he said, yeah. <laughs> well, he actually laughed and said, but this whole time you've told me how much you loved it. And I just was like, right, because it was fighting the narrative of the time that you had to bow down to everything and that, you know, it was an individual questioning God. Um, and then it just 
felt like that first time I read the last bit was just a, oh, I'm sorry, you're right. 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 You know, you're, you know, I was wrong, blah, blah, blah. And then it wasn't until later on I realized other ways of interpreting that. But I just remember with that book of being really disappointed the first time I finished it. Um, And so what are your thoughts on Job? Uh, Like, like I said, I noticed you've got some stuff in there in your new book, but I'm just curious if we can unpack that. I got, I got two chapters on Job where I basically do an exposition from the first to the end of the Job, right through Mm. showing the development of the plot line, but through a particular angle. The angle I take is this, it's a wisdom book. And the wisdom Mm -hmm. question is what is appropriate speech in the context of suffering? Um, that, that's a question I first learned from Gustavo Gutierrez in Theology of Liberation, uh, where he has a little commentary on Job called On Job, which he wrote a little bit later. And he says, that's the question of Job in, in the developing world. How do you speak of God in a situation mm. of suffering? And a lot of other people have been saying this too. So I've been reading Job that way. And, and of course, Job questions God, Job challenges God. But then it looks like God just bullies Job into submission at the end. <laughs> right. So back in 2004, I tried out for my first time an academic paper on Job, on the second speech of God from the whirlwind and Job's response. And I tried it out reading the text differently, very close, you know, um, close textual reading to show a different interpretation. And a biblical scholar named Lyle Eslinger, the Canadian, came to me and said, you have just saved God from being a cosmic bully. I've never heard this reading before. He had me come to his University of Calgary to the Humanities Division and present the annual Craigie lecture there on this topic, a more popular version of it. And that's where these two chapters came from. Hmm. Because when you read it carefully, what God is doing in the first speech from the world, when showing all these crazy animals, these wild animals, showing them the cosmos, is saying, look, you think that I am at fault because I'm not protecting you from suffering? I don't protect anyone from suffering. I'm not a God who micromanages the universe. I like these wild animals. Mm. I'm involved with them. I I feed the ravens and the lions and so on. But they're vulnerable and they're suffering. They can be um, subject to death and so forth. I'm not a micromanager. And Job is silenced after that. And so God says to him, come on, Job. Gird up your loins like a man. Anyone who challenges the Almighty must respond. In other words, I don't accept silence. I want you to speak. Hmm. And Job says, okay, I'll speak. But let me tell you what I'm going to say. I'm not going to tell you anything more. I put my hand over my mouth. I'm, I'm, I'm done. So Job's actual speech is to say, I'm not going to talk anymore. And then God <laughs> comes with a second speech. The question that generated this reading for me is, why is there a second speech? If the first speech bullied Job into submission, and that was God's purpose, why have a second speech? In the second speech, what God does is say, look, I got these two kind of mythical monsters, Leviathan and Behemoth. And the basic characteristic of both of them is they have huge mouths. And Behemoth opens his mouth and the river Jordan flows against it and he can't knock him down. That's how powerful his mouth is. And Leviathan, his eyes flash flames of fire. People try to put a hook in his tongue and tame him. They can't tame him. He's got fiery um, flames, like a dragon, right? I actually think that um, Tolkien's description of Smog and the Hobbit is based on that description of Leviathan and some of the language he actually gets from there, by the way. So I find that's really interesting. I love to study that sometime in more detail. Hmm. By the end of this stage speech where God said, don't you get it, Job? I'm correcting your interpretation of how I run the universe, but I'm not trying to shut you up. I actually like powerful big mouthed beasts. So a friend of mine put it this way. He said, what, that, what God is telling Job is, be like Leviathan. 
Be mm. untamable. Don't let your friends shut you down. Don't let God shut you down. And then Job responds, in all the modern translations, I repent in dust and ashes. Uh, but that's not what he actually says. What he actually says, I'm comforted about dust and ashes. Hmm. The, the verb that can be repent is also can be comfort, and it's ambiguous there, but you find in the book of Job that verb is used consistently for comfort. In fact, it's used later on in the last chapter of Job when his family come to comfort him for his suffering, the exact same verb. Okay. So Job has come to, to recognize that even a frail creature who is made of dust, that means a mortal creature, and who is in the ashes, that is a suffering creature, can be heard by the creator of the universe and taken seriously, and that comforts him. And once you read Job that way, it changes the whole point of the book. So is the correct form of speech in a time of suffering to bless God as he does in chapter one? Well, that's okay. Mm -hmm. But many of my students will say, that seems like an automatic response. He couldn't really believe that. God should be blessed when his kids were just killed, right? And then his body starts to suffer. He doesn't bless God anymore, but he just tells his wife, you got to accept whatever God sends, good or bad, like a stoic. But then after a little while, he sits in silence with his friends for a week, sitting Shiva with them in the Jewish tradition. And then he bursts out this X-rated lament psalm, cursing the day of his birth. And says, that's not even enough. I want to go back to the night before my birth. Curse that night too. Let it never happen. I didn't want to be in the world because I'm suffering so much. And then the question arises, is that appropriate speech? And then the friends come and the friends correct him that no, appropriate speech is to always say God is right and you are wrong. And this goes on in different versions throughout the whole book and he challenges them back. And finally, there is this meditation on the nature of wisdom in chapter 28. People call it an interlude. And where is wisdom to be found? Is it in any of these people's speeches? Who's really right? Mm -hmm. And wisdom is really hard, but finally God has revealed wisdom to us in that if you fear God and, and turn from evil, that's wisdom. That's actually the description of Job from the beginning of the book, that he feared God and turned from evil. Okay, but is it wise to challenge God in, in complaint prayer? That's the question. And then Elihu comes in, a fourth member of the, his friends, and challenges everybody. He says, you're all wrong. Let me explain <laughs> it to you. But nothing he says is any different than what the other three had said. Right. And finally, God speaks. So by the end of the, the, the book, I think the book is trying to suggest to us that challenging God, protest prayer, is what is appropriate speech in a time of suffering. And so Job is reactivating the tradition of the Lament Psalms, which I said was about a third of all the Psalms. Le reactivating that in the post-exilic period when lament had been dying out and people began to understand that God was a transcendent ruler of the world. We are just worms. You're in control. And Job, Book of Job is saying, let's go back to the lament psalms. Challenge God. Don't be afraid to do that. So it's a countercultural book in its original context. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to say so much, but you want no, to No, no, that that's my summary of the book. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate that I'm because in my sometimes and I don't I don't do it as much anymore. Zach has witnessed a lot of it where I will interact with, you know, people on Twitter <laughs> that I've pulled back from. But uh <laughs> you know, sometimes the interact the, with yeah, yeah. Um you know, the the things that I've been what I have said before is that to to some individuals that you know, yes, I'm. I am a person of faith. Uh, I do have a lot of questions and struggles with Scripture. Um, I think that's to me that's part of my process, and I think it's an important part. And that I actually tend to get along 
at least with anonymous people, I get along with atheists better than I do fundamentalists. Um, <laughs> because atheists recognize that, uh, tend to recognize that one, I, uh, you know, am a huge defender of science. Um, and I don't try to equate the two, and especially when it comes to teaching it. And then the fundamentalists who have come after me have typically been like, well, you're, you're not a real Christian is usually what I got. Yeah. Um, which early on in this spiritual journey, that bothered me a lot. But then I started really kind of yeah. seeing it for what it was and and was and really no longer offended by that like I used to be. But yeah, it was just interesting, the, those types of experiences. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I still do push some on some people. I mean, most of the, I mean, there were some who were, you know, people who would get really irate. Uh, and I usually block those individuals. That stuff hadn't happened in a long time. But anyway. Oh, Ian. Ian gets blocked first before block, blocking anyone else. Well, now, yes, I was blocked by Ken Ham. He is still welcome to be on the show if he would like. But, uh, uh, Ian, that's a great privilege to be blocked by Ken I Ham. actually, it was funny when I was uh, finally blocked and someone actually said, hey, dude, this is actually a big deal. I was like, okay. Because <laughs> I was pushing back on his theology and also his teaching, like with his views on science yeah. and science teaching. So I kind of took- well, that's a good transition. Yes, because I I wanted to ask you, uh, Richard, how how science works its way into the work that you do. Yeah, you know, I've been um, from the very beginning of my academic career as an undergrad student, thinking through these theological questions. I was very interested in what is the nature of the world we are in. What is the nature of human identity? What's our point and purpose in the world? And so I was always attracted to creation theology, um, first in Genesis, but also in the Psalms and as Isaiah and other places. I've been working on that topic for a long time, teaching on that topic, not having any personal problems with science or with evolution or age of the earth or anything like that, but not dealing with it explicitly um, because I want to teach my students a better way to read the Bible so that when they come to look at science, they don't perceive attention. And as I've been doing this work, I got invited back in 2013 to be part of a Templeton Grant um, book project called Evolution and the Fall, which has been published in 2017, I think, and started interacting with how does science relate to the Bible? So the stuff you've been teaching is quite compatible with it. Have you reflected on the relationship? And I began presenting on that material and other people heard my presentations and asked me to write blog posts on it and asked me to write other things on it. And so I've been expanding this. I don't have a lot of first-hand knowledge of science. I never was really trained in science, but along the way, I mean, I, my, my master's degree was actually a philosophy degree. And so I, I did a lot of study on um, paradigms and how one interprets reality and so forth. And during that time, I did a lot of reading on paleoanthropology. Um, about that time, this will date me, but about that time, the book Lucy came out with Donald mm. Johansson on Australopithecus afarensis and so forth. I was really interested in all these questions. And I got back to it, realizing that so much had changed in a few years since then to now. We've, we now have, I don't know, eight or 11 different homo, hominin species that we have found, depending on how you count them. Back then, it was just a very few and so forth. So I, I'm trying to keep up and learning, but the way I look at it is, my work in creation theology, and it's not just in creation, the topic of creation, it's the whole Bible, helps people who are working in the sciences to have a, a take on the Bible that is fully compatible with scientific exploration. Mm. It can be both one, a motivation 
for scientific exploration, that you know that God has given us minds, God has given us a world that is knowable, and God has given us the, the, the agency of being imago Dei, be the image of God, to explore the world as God's representatives, human representatives in a complex world that is motivation for science, but it also now, when you look at the Bible, you're not trying to make the Bible match modern science. Because, you know, when people try to match the Bible with modern science two, two, three hundred years ago, four hundred years ago, and then science changed, the match didn't work anymore. Anytime you try and match it, it gets out of date in the next generation. So don't try and do that. Try and understand the Bible on its own terms as an ancient book and ask, how are the theological claims of this text connected to what we discover about the world through the sciences? That's where I'm at right now. I'm still a learner in terms of science, but I'm trying to bring what I know as a gift to those working in the field that we can talk about it. I learn as much from them as they learn from hmm. I'm so happy to hear that you have a passion for paleoanthropology. That I is, love it. That is a field I have only in the past couple of years discovered and thought deeply about at our our mini-series we did on human origins was one of my favorite and most fun to do. I could think and read for hours about Paleolithic spirituality mm -hmm. above all else. This, this idea that people uh, and people who were not even homo sapiens perhaps mm -hmm. had a, a feeling of the divine and had some experience and relationship with and what the implications of that are for our own interpretation of God's revelation, of exclusivity, of God's mm -hmm. connection. And I feel like once you acknowledge that, you know, Neanderthals had a spiritual connection, then so much of modern religion, or at least the exclusivity behind it, kind of right. starts to melt away. Do you, do you yeah. sense that? So let me tell you a story. Now, I wasn't exactly blocked on Facebook for this, but it's, it's, it's close, right? So <laughs> do tell, do posting. tell. It was a way. So so this was a website that was much more open. They, they try to deal. They, they actually, it's, I think it's a web. I'm on about three or four different groups that deal with science and faith in an open way. One of them is called Answers to Answers in Genesis. Oh yeah. <laughs> they try to. They try to. It's it's a great website. Yeah. But sometimes people will post on there who are a little more fundamentalist. And one somebody on one of those websites was a little more fundamentalist and was talking about Adam and Eve being Homo sapiens and how long ago did they live and so on. And I was trying to say, all right, um, you know, the the writers of the Bible had no knowledge of paleoanthropology. You can't say that this is Homo sapiens or Homo erectus or Homo neanderthals or whatever they are. You don't know what they are. There's no, it's got no connection to the science. It's about what they understood a human being is. Now, many scientists will say that all these different genus, uh, the species of Homo, they're, they're all human. They're just different kinds of human. And this guy was, are you saying that Adam and Eve were not Homo sapiens? And, and, and I said, um, the question is not even meaningful. <laughs> How can you answer that question? What does that mean? Uh, you know, and then you know, you pointed there. There are people trying to do the science faith thing, who are into evolution and so on, who try to say no, Adam and Eve, who they think are historical somehow, are really Homo erectus or something like that or whatever. Mm. I don't know. There's all these kind of theories. Well, I just think it's it's a waste of time to try and harmonize the Bible like that mm -hmm. with science. You know, yeah. whatever it means to be human, there's some theological claims about that in the Bible. Let's apply it to any human beings we know. <laughs> you can't go further than that, really. Mm. You know, and, and, and should we view 
um, you know, th these other forms of, of hominins as also human? What difference does it make theologically? I don't really know. Does it change anything right now? Because they don't exist right now, right? <laughs> we have some of their DNA, but that's about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that guy, you know, this guy thought I was a heretic, basically, <laughs> for even suggesting that Adam and Eve were not homo sapiens. And I was just trying to say, we don't know what, what that means, right? Yeah. Huh. So I tend to be agnostic about a lot of questions about the harmonization of the Bible and science. Yeah. They tend to be false questions. Well, I think everyone is someone's heretic. So I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that you had that experience. <laughs> Do you ever find, like I, uh, in conversations with some people when they, like especially uh, like apologetics, right? Um, that to me, I uh, and this is just my opinion and I don't know a whole lot about apologetics. Um, I almost feel like by trying, from what I understand, apologetics is, trying to use reason to, to support the Bible almost, right? Like the, is that, is that too simple of a way? That's, that's generally right, but it's very simple. It's much more complicated. There are different kinds of apologetics with different purposes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'll get into that if you want. Yeah. Finish up what you Well, so what, I, to me, it almost seems like, at least for me, that that could almost limit the power of scripture and God, right? Of, Having yeah. to find, having to defend someone's faith or spiritual perspectives using reason to me kind of boxes it in. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I feel like it's so, it's more powerful than that. We yeah. are limiting ourselves by trying to do that. Yeah. So let me say a way in which that's not, not it's not a problem and then a way in which it is a okay. problem. So anyone who believes anything has to have some reasons for believing it. Okay. They may not be pure. It's not pure rationality in any abstract sense, but they have to have reasons. Otherwise, why are you going to believe it? Your reason might even be, well, my mom told me, so I trust her. You know, That could be your reason. <laughs> or you, your reason could simply be, well, the Bible says so, and I believe it. That could be your reason. Okay. But we all have some kind of rational explanation, a second-order explanation of our beliefs. The beliefs don't depend on that explanation. But if we want to account for why we believe, we talk about that. I can tell you about why I believe what I believe. It's not going to prove it to anybody. I know I've been in philosophy. I study epistemology. I know you can't prove any, anything in the world. Um, you know, and I, I know about Gödel's theorem and all that kind of stuff. And all in Heisenberg, uncertainty principle. I've been through all that. Right. But the, the problem comes when you think that you can show. So there, there are two forms of apologetics. Would be the problem that you, one one. What really absolutist form is to think that I can show on some universal rational plane why my beliefs are correct in such a way that anyone who is rational would also believe it. These days in epistemology, that's called foundationalism. Okay. They believe that there is an epistemic foundation that is indubitable, that if you doubt it, you're irrational. I've actually only met one person in all my philosophy studies who is a PhD student who actually believed that, who thought I was irrational for being a Christian. None of my professors ever thought that. They understand you have your own personal reasons and you can talk about it. You can discuss why you believe. So that's the absolutist thing. Very few people believe that you can prove the absolute truth of a position, okay. of, a, of a faith position or any position anymore. But there can be a practical apologetics that you use reason to convince another person of your point of view. So. I think that's quite legitimate, except that the way it's done in popular apologetics, when you use the term apologetics, what you usually mean is this, is that 
by giving these reasons, I will make it plausible for that person. But every person, their plausibility structure is different than yours. The reasons that you give are not going to necessarily make it plausible for another person. Okay. In fact, a lot of people who do apologetics at a popular level, they're not tend to be philosophers, they're popular apologists. What they do is they sound rational to people who don't have any academic background and say, oh my God, I better believe that because it must be rational. Mm -hmm. And it's a smoke and mirrors game. Yes, like is. I've read a lot of this stuff and the arguments are specious at, at, at an intellectual level. But if you don't know that, you say, oh, this sounds really profound. I better believe it. And But it really serves to really bolster people's faith who don't have much grounds for believing. It doesn't really convince other people. But it can bolster the faith of a lot of church people. A very famous apologist who's been dethroned recently, who did all this, was Ravi Zacharias. Yes. You may have heard his name. Yeah. I heard Ravi Zacharias come to my... I was a campus minister in the 80s in Canada. And uh, one member of our group was a cousin of Ravi Zacharias and had him come beginning of his career. And I was a philosophy major while I was being a campus minister. And he gave a speech. And I remember thinking... That is the most biggest piece of garbage I've ever heard. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But the students are, oh my, this sounds really intellectual. But the few philosophy students in the group all said, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And he went on to make a career out of this and became very famous. And he's been pulled down through some sexual you know, sins and so forth recently, mm. which caused people to doubt him now. They should have been doubting him on an intellectual basis long ago, actually. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> so what are we... Uh... What topics, biblical topics, are we not teaching enough oh, in in our churches like and that. schools and stuff? It's probably different for different churches. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> it's a great but, answer. But but generally, um, I have tended to to gravitate to topics that are important both for me and for other people. I've never gravitated to theological topics that are just important for me. I've always found mm. topics that other people said were important for them too. And that sweet spot where they connected is the kind of research I've been doing. It seems to me that the biggest problem in the churches is we don't have a good creation theology. Mm. We separate the doctrine of salvation from creation. And we have an idea that, you know, I am saved by God and God wants to save us and God wants to redeem us and whatever we mean by all that. But in the Bible, salvation is also is always... God delivering us from that which impedes our flourishing and restoring us to flourishing. But you have to then ask, what is God's intent for human flourishing? And that's where creation theology comes in. And so if you don't understand the grounding of salvation in creation, you misread a whole lot in the Bible. And this is why the dominant approach to, to salvation in the church has been to go to heaven when you die. Mm. Whereas the Bible is about the coming of God to indwell the earth in the eschaton, to make all things new and to renew the world. Uh, the, the Jewish tradition calls it tikkun olam, literally means to establish the world. They treat it as a mean to heal the world, to reestablish the world after its brokenness and destruction that we have. That salvation is about God making the world what it was meant to be, that is never fully become because of our corruption. Hmm. So, so in my opinion, then creation theology was, was the spot I had to do most work on. But it had implications for everything else in theology. 
Yeah. And you just uh, contributed a chapter to a new Zondervan book that they just put out called Four Views on Heaven, in which, if I'm reading that correctly, uh, you expound more on that idea of a uh, a, a perfected earth, but a very physical next life and not a disassociated spiritual in the by and by. Right. And so this goes back to a book I wrote in 2014 on that topic called A New Heaven and a New Earth, which the publisher called as a subtitle, Reclaiming Biblical Eschatology mm. from this heavenly-oriented to earth-oriented thing. So this chapter was a summary of that, but it also focused a little more intently on a point that I was making over the years, that, that it's not just that God wants to renew the world. God wants to be present with us. There's a sense in which we experience the absence of God, and the lament psalms will cry out, you know, where are you, Lord? Um, um, you know, wake up, O oh Lord, that kind of thing. God's not here somehow. And there is a whole stream of theology throughout the Bible of God designed to be present with his people from the, from, the, from the beginning. That's what imago Dei means. To be the image of God is to be the mediator of the presence of God into the world. And then God comes to Israel, and Israel is to be the mediator of the presence of God in the world. And God comes to dwell in the tabernacle to mediate his presence among the people. And the church is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the incarnation of the word, the presence of God among us. And the parousia, which is a big a Greek term for the second coming, right, is actually just means presence in Greek. Mm-hmm. God coming to be present with us. So this, this, this sacramental notion of being in the presence of God should never be separated from this incarnational notion of the, the restoration of the world. It's not just that God wants to restore a secular world. God wants to make the world truly a sacred place, the way it was meant to be. Mm. So I, I co- combine those themes in that essay in a short space of one little essay in a way that summarizes a lot of stuff from other things that I've written in the past. Yeah, I, I think that's something that we have gotten wrong a lot in popular theology. And I, I, I'll admit I've perpetrated some of that myself at funerals when I don't, mm-hmm. you know, when we use language like, well, he's looking down on us now and he's he's at peace and, you know, that... That seems to suggest that there is an eternal part of right. you that experiences then the flow of time without ceasing. Without and a then body. just continues on <laughs> without a body. Yeah. But you got to yeah. wear the same clothes you wore when you died. So be careful how you dress. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, but that the, the promise, in, in, uh, at least in the New Testament, is of a bodily resurrection altogether at the same time. Yeah. Um, it's creation theology that made it clear to me that to be a human being is to be embodied. There is mm-hmm. no such thing as a disembodied human being. It's not even possible. It's not conceivable within the Bible. Uh, and I, I'll stand by that and argue that. Um, and, you know, so what happens when you die? Well, that's the one part of that book, New Heaven and New Earth, that many people who agreed with the general trend disagreed with. They want to say, no, you got to exist as a spirit or a soul after death even before the coming of the kingdom of God. Hmm. There's got to be this intermediate state. And I said, well, you can believe that if you like. But I went through this, the six New Testament passages that seem to say that and show that none of them actually do say that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it turns out there's a recent book written on Martin Luther. And it's hard to write a book on Luther's theology because he, he doesn't write a systematic treatise. He has all these little, you know, these table talks stuff and, and sermons and so on. And this guy came together and showed that Luther believed that there is no separable soul existing after death. You go to sleep, literally, and you're unconscious until the resurrection. 
And this is not a new doctrine. It's also there in some of the church fathers and so forth. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. So that's, yeah. So the, the hope is not heaven after death. The hope is the renewal of the creation. That's the hope. Yeah. And, and it makes a big difference to how you live your life. If your hope is heaven after death, what are you going to do about making this world a better place? It's like, let's move on to the next one quickly because it's better there. But if the, the, the hope is the renewal of creation, the question is, how are you contributing towards that? So I, the phrase I've been using of late is ethics is lived eschatology. Ooh. What you actually believe hmm. as the destiny of the world, you will be living that now, if you really believe it. Not just your intellectual doctrines, but what you actually believe deep in your soul. I really like that phrase. Yeah. We've been talking death a lot with my four-year-old. He's obsessed with death now. Wow. And uh, <laughs> he finds great comfort. Well, he, both his parents are pastors. Yeah. It's going to happen. <laughs> kind of works out well. great comfort in the resurrection as opposed to the idea that you die and go to heaven. Because when his teacher said that when you die, you go to heaven, he thought, like, oh, my dad's going to die before me. And then how am I going to find him when I get there? <laughs> <laughs> and he was terrified. He he was telling me, Dad, when you get there, I want you to hang out by that place where the rock is, which like the tomb of Jesus with the rock. Mm -hmm. And I said, Oh, buddy, don't worry. When when I die, I'll be I'll be gone, just like a long sleep. And then you'll die much later. And then we'll wake up together. When when you know, at the end of all, all of this, we'll yeah, all wake up yeah. together and we'll be there together and we'll figure it out together. And he thought, oh, that's much better, Dad. Thank you. <laughs> that's good. That's good, yeah. He's huh. into it. I find it more hopeful than than the whole, like, eternality of the soul one way or the other. <laughs> because then yeah. you're just in God's hands. Yeah. But, but I also say that I don't go out of my way to disabuse people of that idea. Yeah. As long as they're focused on the true hope of Christianity as a renewal of creation— then believe what you want about the intermediate state, but don't let it affect your, your living too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I have never corrected a widow at a funeral or right, anything right, like right. that. <laughs> but, you know, I've preached at the funeral of my mom, my dad, and my, my mother-in-law, hmm. and also the funeral of my, my, um, my, fa my, my father-in-law. I preached at four funerals. And each time I explicitly said, the hope is not for what happens when you die in heaven, we hope is for the resurrection. Yeah. And I made it really clear. And I talked about how it's hopeful, why it's hopeful, how it affects life now. And um, one of the funerals about three years ago now of my mother-in-law, two of her sisters who are still alive came to me and said, would you preach that same sermon at our, our funerals? <laughs> because it gave us hope. And huh. that, that's the answer I give to people. I say, well, if you deny this intermediate state with being a Jesus in heaven, it's going to take away hope. And no, it doesn't take away hope at all. It depends how you articulate it. Yeah. No, I agree. I think it's a more biblical approach, and I think it's a more hopeful approach, and I think it's uniquely Christian, and we sh we ought to own it. It's it's a good story. Well, like like people say too, you know, with all aspects of life, I feel like I was reading something the other day, and the power of hope of having hope in things. You know, we mm -hmm. in politics too. If you think about you know Obama's. Uh, run in 2008 about hope and change, you know, it connected with a lot of people because people needed hope, needed that feeling of yeah. that there's something to to believe in and to hold truth to, that there's a chance for better, right? And be it, yeah. you know, religious, spiritual, or or secular. Um, it's just that knowing that, okay, this is, 
I need to be able to hope for something. Um, I think is very powerful. Uh, right. And it, I mean, it resonates with me. And I think, you know, friends of mine, uh, people, you know, I struggle uh, with mental health. Um, and, you know, one of the things that really helps me through challenging times is knowing that um, that moment of a very depressed moment or an anxious moment, that there's another side to it, right? That I will come out of that moment mm-hmm. and still have hope. And that's even when I'm in my darkest moments, it uh, makes me keep moving forward. Like it helps me know mm-hmm. that this moment will pass, right? Yeah. So wherever I get that hope from. So I think hope is a very powerful message. Yeah. Hmm. Sorry, I went on a tangent. So, so. As, no, we, good. Good. as we are wrapping up, um, I want to I wanna ask you one last question. Um, that I have asked all of the fellows and feel free to take your time in thinking through an answer. But what is, what is one thing that you wish everyone knew about the world? One? You get the opportunity to zap one thing (laughs) into every brain in the entire world. That none of us is a center of reality, but that we need to have an open attitude of humility and gratitude for the world as a gift. I like that. Yeah. That's the blessing, I think, that comes from studying paleoanthropology to bring us back. It decenters the current modern human from even the experience of being a person. And there's goodness in that humility. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, and thank you for spending the past 45 minutes with us, um, sharing some of your passions of what you're doing. Um, we'll, we'll provide links in the show notes if anyone wants to check out your most recent books or any of your previous ones as well. You've written quite a bit. So if people like what they hear, then they have uh, a lot to catch up on. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. I really had a wonderful time so far. Yeah, yeah. Great. likewise. Thank you. Thank you. And best of luck in all of the rest of the next couple of years of Sinai and Synapses as well. Thank you. Yeah. Have a great time. I, have, I know. It was a wonderful experience. <laughs>